HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. We're recording a live remote show on Tuesday, April 7th, 2020. Uh, we're in the middle of COVID crisis and everyone's remote. We're using a special internet program. And this show has been in the works for a while. We're so excited to have our guests on, talk about industrial arts and some of the new things happening in the Hudson Valley of New York State craft beer. So let's have everyone introduce themselves. So let's start with Sophia. Hi, everybody. Hi, Jimmy. It's so good to be back on here. Um, my name is Sofia Barbaresco. I'm the brand director at Industrial Arts Brewing Company. I was the second employee there, and I was on Jimmy's show probably a month before we opened, talking about all of the exciting things that we had going on a few months into my tenure there. And I just had my three-year anniversary there four-year anniversary there it's, this month. It's amazing, Sophie. It's great to have you back. And now I'm going to, uh, Gio, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, I'm Jeff Wenzel. I'm the research and development brewer at Industrial Arts. Uh, we've been on your show, I think, I don't know, two times, many moons ago, and just stoked to be back. And great. And our writer friend, Ben. Hey, everybody. Uh, ben Keen, beer writer, judge, and uh, big fan of Industrial Arts. Great. So uh, this is really exciting to have everyone on board. So, Sophia, I think what it, it, it turned out that between you getting becoming part of the um, New York State Craft Brewers Association, you're a board member at large. And then Gio, uh, I haven't talked to Gio in a while, uh, coming back from New Belgium. We have a lot to talk about. So why don't you start by telling us really where industrial arts is at right now? I, kn I know you guys have opened a second uh, location and beacon. I'd like to c catch up to speed with you guys, and then at some point also tell me about all the different wrench beers that you have, because I haven't even tasted all of them yet. Yeah, I'm actually drinking a pocket wrench right now. So we opened in August of 2016, our original location in Rockland County, and that's where we do all of our production currently. And last summer right around our anniversary we opened up a second tap room up in beacon we actually have we leased 
a huge facility up there with like a beautiful view of the mountains and we're working on building out the rest of the space. So we have a tap room currently. We have a really nice deck so you can go there after hiking in the mountains. Um, you can bring your dog and have a beer and sit outside and enjoy the fresh air. And then eventually we're going to build out a few more spaces in there, a huge private event space, and also a, a brewery that is about twice the size of the brewery that we currently have in Garnerville. Wow, that's pretty awesome. And then, uh, Jeff, tell us how you came back to the East Coast. So I know I had met you when you were first working at Keegan's, and then you went out yeah. went out to New Belgium. Tell us a little bit about that experience, some of the things you learned in Colorado. Uh, I learned so much there, man. I mean, that place is riddled with uh, talented brewers and microbiologists and uh, had the great pleasure to work under some really intelligent people. Um, so uh, from a learning perspective, it was probably one of the better experiences I could have hoped for as a brewer. Um, and yeah, Keegan seems like ages ago. Uh, but yeah, um, just worked in the cellar out there and worked in the wood cellar at New Belgium. And then they opened a small brew pub in uh, in Denver and ran that thing and uh, was in talks with Jeff for, I don't know, on and off for a year and uh, decided it was kind of time to move back home and come back to the beautiful Hudson Valley. Well, it's great to have you. You sent me a nice picture of you. You said it's the brew deck. So so what what kind of system are you working on? at industrial arts and uh you know wh what was it like coming back in terms of working at that brewery uh well i got my start on a very very extremely manual brew house and then went to new belgium which was extremely automated and much larger and then here at industrial arts we have a pretty decked out fully automated uh 25 hectoliter Browcon system. Um, you know, Jeff and Mike McManus, the brewmaster, you know, have a lot of years in the industry and a lot of years making beers. So they knew exactly what they wanted and exactly what they were doing when they built out the system. And uh, it was a nice, it's like a nice, it was nice to come back to a relatively, you know, reasonable sized brew house with the level of automation we have. Um, uh, just because I got to use a lot of my previous experience uh, to apply to my current role in industrial arts. What are some things that you're doing that that, that are that are specialized? You know, because you're, you're you're doing a new series, a landscape series. Um, yeah, what what are you bringing to the the brewery? Um, well, the landscape series was in place far before I got there. Uh, so a lot of what I've been doing is more on the research and development side and uh, working pretty intimately with our state of the art series, which we're trying to highlight either new ingredients or um, processes that are kind of unique to our brew house, whether that's, you know, the inline wort chiller to the whirlpool or a hot back, um, and, you know, our fooders, uh, just uh, various things that, you know, aren't very common in a 25 hectoliter brew house. So uh, just kind of playing with those and pulling as many levers as I can to create something unique and different. 
Yeah, one of the big projects that we had this year was the installation of the mash filter, which oh, allows us filter. to play around with um, all kinds of different raw materials and, and different kinds of grains. And a few of the beers that Geo has developed um, are 100% wheat beers. And those have been really interesting to try to see the difference between a beer that has no barley and like a style that you typically see 50-50 wheat and barley. And how does that translate when it's 100% wheat? You know, and these are the types of things that we were able to do with the the BrowCon that we have and the additions that we've made onto the system on top of that. You know, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> I, I'd heard about, so what is it like working with those different grains? I mean, is that why you need the mash filter? I mean, wh- what different processes do you have to do, Gio? Uh, the mash filter was definitely an awesome learning experience for us. Uh, you know, most mash filters in the brewing industry are used for efficiency and gaining efficiency and extract out of your brew, which kind of require a hammer mill. Uh, we don't have a hammer mill. So we're taking a very different perspective towards using it. Um, so we're just, a lot of what we're using it for is the ability to use, uh, you know, full adjunct mashes. And like Sophia said, 100% wheat beers, which would never be able to lauder in a typical brew house. So uh, we're finding some really awesome things out about the difference between you know, 100% wheat mash, and then like 100% barley mash. I think one of the most interesting things to me was with the wheat wine we made where, uh, you know, we fermented, it was a pretty low hop load and then fermented it out with our, you know, our, our typical strain we use for our wrench series. And I mean, the ester profile is just out of this world, fruity. And you would think we were throwing all these uh, new hop varietals that tend to give it tropical, to give off tropical aromas, but it's really just the ester profile from that specific yeast and using 100% wheat-derived sugar for fermentation. Um, It's like heavy red licorice and Hawaiian punch, and it doesn't drink like 10.7%, which it most certainly is. Wow, that, that's amazing. We'll talk more about that. Uh, Sophia, just tell us about the brand development. And I know when Industrial Arts started, it was Tools of the Trade was the flagship. And then suddenly yeah. you had the wrench. I remember a, a year ago, the DeChico's market people were on and said that for Memorial Day weekend, like the Industrial Arts wrench IPA is just like their top seller. Um, tell us about the development of, of your guys' brand. Yeah, I mean it's been it's been a wild ride. <laughs> uh wrench is something that definitely we didn't see coming. We didn't really expect it to be the success that it is. Um it was kind of like a oh everybody else is doing this. We can we can try doing this as well and then it just like I think in part because of the systems that we have in place, like the knowledge of the brewers that we have in addition with the the state of the art equipment that we have um, and the access to quality ingredients that have been built with through the relationships that we've been building over the past few years. um, We just really, we really struck on something that, that people connected to. So it's kind of, 
blown up into this thing that we we I'm still shocked at and didn't expect. Um, and so it started off as wrench, and that is right now we we actually we've done a bunch of testing. It we had an assumption that it was six point eight percent. We recently had um, outside labs confirmed that it's actually closer to 7.1%. So we've changed the that information on the can. The recipe hasn't changed at all. The beer hasn't changed at all. The content inside the can hasn't changed. But we did uh, decide to communicate more accurate information to the consumer. So it's a 7.1% hazy IPA that's really juicy, really fruity, exactly what you would expect of the style. And we've actually managed to make it really stable like I've had wrenches that are six months old and they still taste pretty good which is somewhat unexpected for the style like we use different kinds of quality control metrics that help maintain that and so if Um, if, if people don't know that the wrench is a New England IPA style right yeah yeah exactly um and then we kind of decided to play a little bit more with that style and see how we could push the boundaries and how we could use the resources that we have to explore what are the limits of the style. So after we did Wrench, I believe the next one that we did was Torque Wrench, which was like a double IPA version of it. And it was the first, maybe the second double IPA that we ever did. And it was just kind of a blown up version of Wrench. And we played around a little bit with the recipe. We've done a few different versions of it, but people were really excited about it. Um, And then we decided to go in the opposite direction and we released Pocket Wrench, which is my favorite beer right now. I think it's perfect for the spring. I popped one open and it has this kind of like Italian cocktail spritziness to it. It's really like bright and fresh. It's only four and a half percent. The words that we put on the can is fluffy tropical mist so it has this kind of like it's it, it's very refreshing um it's perfect for spring days and then the latest addition to the wrench series is the totally opposite direction and it's a triple ipa so ever since geo has come on actually we've been kind of playing around with bigger beers and so we've released two beers Um, at the end of last year in the triple digits, or double digits, (laughs) Um, triple IPA, it's about 10%. And we're calling that impact wrench. And that is like, it's unbelievably smooth. It's unbelievably drinkable. Geo maybe can talk a little bit about what we do in the process, because we do some special things to keep that drinkability even at a 10% beer. Yeah, um, that was actually really cool to do because we have this super you know high abv beer that you would expect to be boozy as hell and then uh it you would never know it's a 10 percent beer by drinking it and uh you know what we've done to try and achieve that is uh kind of step the fermentation up so basically uh, very typically um or generally not always but uh these hazy styles are fermented relatively hot or warmer than like a typical West coast IPA. And so with impact wrench, when we first brewed it, we knew there's a high ABV load. 
So what we did was kind of start the fermentation at a lower temp. So we knocked out out of the whirlpool at a lower temperature, started that fermentation at a lower temperature, and uh, gradually increased it until I think the after the first dry hop addition, we set it at its final fermentation temperature. So it had three different temperature settings during the first three days of its fermentation. So what this does is kind of curbs the yeast a little bit to reduce the amount of like higher alcohols you're producing, which typically give off those boozy, boozy aroma notes, you know, which is what we didn't want. You know, we wanted a very drinkable beer that, you know, didn't taste like. Gio, is, is, is it like a, a really good classic Belgian triple where, again, you don't it doesn't taste as, as strong, but it, it, it gets to you? Um, to me, it t- like you might as well be drinking a, a six or seven percent hazy IPA. You wouldn't, you don't know until you, you step off the bar stool. You know what I mean? <laughs> that it ten percent. That's great. Hey, <laughs> let's let's switch. So so Ben Keen called in from Seattle. Ben, I, I know you you spent some time on the East Coast. You were in Ithaca. Uh, you, you've you've know Jeff O'Neill going way back. Um, For sure. Tell us about your 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 you're excited to talk about industrial arts. So. You know, how, how do you see industrial arts, you know, from where you are now? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I I met Jeff when he was still at Peekskill. Um, and I knew your other brewer when he was still um, in Omegang when I was living in Ithaca. Um, and so, yeah, just the evolution, I think, and the sophistication, I guess, um, for lack of a better word, with which the brand um, has grown and developed in a relatively short amount of time, I think is impressive, especially given the environment right now, um, the competitive landscape and the number of breweries that uh, are in Washington, um, not Washington, that's where I am, in New York, <laughs> um, I think is, is remarkable. And you guys have got a great team there great branding and obviously you know the beer is unassailable so um yeah just kudos is uh, really what i can boil it down to thank you thanks ben. have you guys thought about uh in the wrench series doing a doing a beer with um maybe a half yeast and calling it monkey wrench by the way <laughs> <laughs> no that's a new one <laughs> yeah, Ben. So, how, how's it going out there in Washington? So, we're going to switch a little bit just to you know what's going on with the COVID crisis. Um, I'm, I'm following a lot of like on Twitter, you know, guys like Andy Crouch at Beer Scribe, um, Jeff Alworth, seeing what's going on. Um, what's what's it like in Washington? Do you have any predictions for for what what's happening? Yeah, um, yeah. I'll talk about it uh, for a minute or two, and then kind of. Uh... I think maybe we can compare and contrast to what's happening in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, I think uh, we had the first case in the United States. Um, and then uh, kind of our governor took action really quickly. Obviously, it hurt hospitality, um, restaurant, brewery, uh, winery business. Um, everybody quickly has sort of pivoted to beer to go. Um, beer deliveries, beer by mail to a limited extent, um, and a lot of breweries that really relied heavily on draft have been scrambling to, um, you know, get their hands on a crowler machine, 
ramp up canning um, and get into some of those uh, retail accounts where people are shopping more. Um, and I think it's tough for a lot of places, um, especially if that wasn't part of your original business plan. Uh, some places have been successful at doing that. I mean, I know a brewery here in um, Seattle, they sold uh, 2,400 crawlers in a week out of their tap room. Um, and I know other breweries are struggling, you know, they're making a couple hundred dollars. Um, what's it been like uh, in, in New York? What is the experience in the Hudson Valley compared to New York City, for example? Sophia? Yeah, we've seen an incredible outpouring of support. It's actually been really beautiful to see. Um, as soon as we decided to close our tap rooms, we got like a flood of emails of people asking how can they support, how can they help, how can they order. So that first week, I was scrambling, super busy trying to figure out how we could transition our entire hospitality model onto um, something that was online based and so that you could or pre-order or do a delivery service. Um, but we actually, we, we are seeing pretty steady sales, like things are going pretty well. And I think our model helps the fact that we have a canning line, the fact that we have um, really strong distribution partners like Serene Craft Beer Distributors that distributes our beer in three different states has really like stepped up during this time and has been a great partner in getting our beer. The fact that we are in grocery stores and that we were um, that we're an essential business. I think means that people have really been able to to continue supporting us in this time. And it's just been really nice to like, I, I worked a few shifts in the tap room um, for beer pickups and stuff and just like seeing friendly faces and people just like really happy to have a reason to come out of the house and do this thing and buy beer and feel good about it. It's just, it's, it's really uh, rewarding. Can I say, it's, it's interesting, you know what, four or five years ago, the can revolution was really happening. And now, it, is, is are can sales what's saving breweries right now? In my perspective, absolutely. We gave our, crowd, since we're not doing crowlers, um, we gave our crowler machine to a local business so that they could, to a local brewery so that they could keep their, they just opened up mm, maybe three months ago. So we gave our crawler machine to them so that they could keep their business going during this time because they don't do any canning. And we've just been able to can 100% of our product and not put anything in kegs. And it's something that, you know, our, our business model has helped us be have a little bit more resilience during this transition period right now. Yeah. Ben, about cans in Seattle? Um, huge. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, like I said, a lot of places have um, scrambled to get their hands on crowler machines. I know breweries that have them have loaned them to other, um, you know, friends in the industry. And um, anybody that has access to a canning machine is using it as much as possible. I think, you know, it's been huge 
uh, to help people out of this tough time. And I think, as Sophia was saying um, or alluding to, I think it's going to continue to be a very big part of a lot more businesses going forward, even after we're out of the woods, so to speak, with COVID. It's interesting. It seems that technology that's already in place, like, for example, Venmo to pay people uh, is, is really coming in handy uh, right now. Is anything going on with your online ordering, Sophia, that, that you had set up that's really been helping you? Yeah, I think that we it was it was definitely a kind of a scramble to figure it all out. But luckily, we have a good team and we kind of put things together to to figure it out. Um, it's been a pretty smooth transition in terms of doing deliveries, but it's also a lot of, it's, it's, it's also a lot of keeping people on top of, on top of all of the systems, because there's only so much that you can do in terms of relying on the technology. You have to have all of the people checking it and making sure that, you know, that the orders are correct and that the doing the routing and everything like that. And it's actually been pretty good to keep the team uh, together and motivated. Yeah. And Ben, have, have you, um, are there any types of software or, or online ordering stories that you're hearing about or that people are writing about? I'm not that familiar with the different um, sort of ordering solutions that people have used, but um, like industrial arts, um, Dozens and dozens of breweries have um, added the ability to do online ordering and then, um, you know, curbside pickup. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm curious, actually, if things like that are going to, again, stick around after all this is over. If, um, you know, breweries are interested in maintaining that aspect of their business um, or if, you know, since rules have been relaxed a little bit. Um, if things will will stay that way, I don't know if Geo, you and Sophia have a perspective on that. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how it plays out. I mean, in New York State specifically, they really loosen the laws for, um, like, even for uh, bars and restaurants, the ability to deliver alcohol uh, and pick up curbside. You know, that used to be uh, relatively strict here, and I'm, I mean. Uh, who knows? I, the you know, there have haven't been any issues to suggest that they would remove those things, but I don't know. It's pretty well, cool. It's something opinion. that we've been talking about a lot in the New York State Brewers Association is figuring out. Uh, you know, the SLA acted very quickly. The government acted really quickly. The state government to allow for these special exceptions during this period and we're really thankful for that and now we have to kind of take in all of the data of what's happening um to figure out how we're going to move forward after this because these allowances are only in place until the end of this month and they will likely be extended depending on how things turn out but it's not like just because these allowances happened right now that they are that they're going to be I heard somebody say like it's like uh, taking toothpaste out of the tube like you you can't put it back in but you know there's 
it's kind of a wild west in terms of beer delivery and beer shipping. There aren't a lot of regulations. There isn't really any way to comply because there aren't any SOPs for compliance. So it's definitely not just going to stay this way because we've been allowed to do it this way during this period of extraordinary circumstances. Um, so it is something that we're talking about in the NYSBA to figure out, like, is this how we want to proceed? And I think it's really great for the breweries, but at the same time, we have to think of the health of the entire ecosystem. Like, if breweries do go all in on shipping and delivery, how is that going to affect distributors? How is that going to affect on-premise retailers and everybody else down the line? And I'd be interested in hearing, Ben and Jimmy, your opinions about how how you guys think this is going to affect the bigger picture, you know, because for breweries, yeah, it's easy to say it's great. But I think that we need to think of the people who have supported us down the line throughout this entire craft beer boom, how this these kinds of relaxing of regulations would affect them. Thank you, Sophia. Let me just, let's take one quick break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey guys, we're talking with industrial arts crew Sophia and, and Jeff, and Ben Keen is calling in from Seattle. Um, so Sophia, you're, you were talking about you know how laws and, and liquor licenses and distribution, so many things are changing now under COVID. Um, it's funny because I was reading earlier our, our buddy Andy Crouch in Boston. He, he, he wrote about how some breweries in the Boston area are actually pulling up in trucks and filling people's growlers in their in their driveways. Now you're asking that seems a little extreme to me for, for for continuing long term, but you understand the urgency of the situation. And I'm on the side of you know I'm always a big fan of retail, good beer seal bars, you know beer shops. Um, I know guys like Top Hops Beer Shop, who's in Lower East Side and Essex Market in New York City. Um, you know th- they're struggling right now, and and there's others like B Town Brews out in Ozone Park, Queens. That are, that are probably doing okay because, uh, you know, they're, they're in an area where there's not too many other uh, competitions. So it, it's pretty complicated. I know that Alphabet City Beer Co. in East Village, I was there on on uh, Saturday, and Malt Mold, also near the East Village, they, they have uh, somewhat of a, a grocery store vibe with, you know, they've, they've people already can get cans there. They can get cheese and food as well. Um, they're more of like a hyper-local neighborhood spots. 
they've been able to morph, I think, more easily in, in, into this like all takeout model. So it's kind of like this takeout nation to go nation. And um, I think the, the ones who are going to get hurt the most are restaurants, just because restaurants depend so much on the whole business model of a restaurant is people coming in, sitting down, the whole hospitality aspect. And if you're just going to do takeout food and drinks, I mean, that's a whole different that's a whole different business, you know, um, Ben. Yeah, I think, uh, Sophia, you brought up a good point, though, talking about the whole ecosystem. Um, we uh, beer fans, beer drinkers like to talk about the breweries they love um, and how this pandemic is hurting them. But um, it's hurting distributors as well. I know a lot of um Distributors of all sizes on the West Coast here um, have had to lay off people, um, and it's really been a big interruption to their business. And so um, if rules and laws were extended where, as you say, um, mailing beer or, um, you know, those sorts of new transactions, I guess, were allowed... um, I think it, it would be it wouldn't make everybody so happy. I remember um, a number of years ago, uh, as the tap room boom was starting, a lot of bars um, were annoyed by that fact. I remember um, Chris Black at the Falling Rock in Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, he made some comments, I think, on social media um, very unfavorably about all the tap rooms opening up, and I think. You know, uh, if you had a bottle shop somewhere and uh, every brewery is now able to make deliveries on their own and mail beer direct to consumers, I think some of those people would also be annoyed. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's going to bring up a lot of issues. Uh, Sophia, so let's talk about you. One reason we, we put the show together originally was that you had uh, joined the board of the New York State Brewers Association. And I thought that was pretty interesting. It seems that you guys must be at the center of all these conversations. Yeah, it's been really interesting um, having people reach out to me interested in the work that the New York State Brewers Association is doing for the first time. You know, people that previously weren't involved, didn't pay a lot of attention to the work that we were doing, um, all of a sudden see the value in being part of the association. So I definitely think I'm, I'm there at a very interesting time it has changed a lot in the, the, you know, I only have been on the board officially since January. And the things that we were focusing on when we went to Albany to lobby for things in, in early February, just seem like a a faraway dream right now. Um, And I think right now, you know, the board has been sending out updates and a morning update and an evening update to all of the members of the association about all of the different resources available to breweries in New York state. And I've been finding it incredibly helpful. So anybody who's listening that has a brewery, um, even if you aren't part of the association, there are lots of really valuable resources there. And I think this is a really important time. You know, last week we had a call with all of the Hudson Valley breweries so that people could kind of just talk about what's happening in their area, what are things that they're doing, what are things that they would like to see 
change? What are things that they would like to see stay the same? Um, and just building that sense of community, I think, has been really important at this time. Well, one, one thing that I'm sure you're hearing, and all businesses have to deal with this now, um, is the impact of paying taxes, excise taxes, insurance, and, and, and other costs. Mm -hmm. It seems that from, from merchant associations up to you know Brewers Association, there's just so many issues to address. And I think that we're going to direct people to New York State Brewers Association website because there's a lot of good things on there. But I want to ask you, jumping ahead, um, we were taken with this new, uh, the landscape series that you guys are doing at Industrial Arts. Uh, just tell us a little more about this. And I'd also, my question is, if, if there is any supply chain crunch, um, is it better for you guys to embrace more local ingredients? Like I know you're working with Hudson Valley Malt on the Landscape Series. So well, let's talk about the Landscape Series. Yeah, we've been working with Hudson Valley Malt since the beginning, and they've been excellent partners. Um, I think in part because of our scale, we've also kind of stretched them and helped them grow in a certain way, which has been really exciting to see. Um, we have made, at this point, seven or eight landscape series beers. So we put it out once a quarter. There's summer landscape, autumn landscape, winter landscape, spring landscape. And they're all New York State ingredients. Um, we actually did hop contracting for the first time this year of all New York State hops. And we're also using those those New York hops that we've contracted in the new quarterly IPA series that we're doing called Yes Farms, Yes Beer that Jimmy mentioned at the top of the show. Um, so we've been really focusing. It's something that Jeff O'Neill, the owner, and Mike McManus, our brewmaster, have been focused on for a lot of their careers is how can we develop New York State ingredients and I think we've really seen, like, in, in my time in, in the beer industry, I've really seen it grow and develop and get to a really impressive place. Like, we're at a point where we can make a hazy IPA made with all New York State ingredients, and it rivals, uh, I won't name any other beers, but, like, <laughs> 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 you know. A beer made in Vermont or something like that. Some of the good know. ones, yeah. <laughs> you know, Ben, I, I was going to say Vermont too, but. <laughs> um, so that's been really exciting to see just like in my in my short time here. The, the partners that we have in this endeavor have definitely made it possible because we have that relationship where we can be like, hey, you know, this is working for us. This is what's not working for us. Can you do this in the next batch? And ha being able to have that conversation really helps develop the the processes in a constructive way. Maybe Gio can speak a little bit more to that relationship. Yeah, I mean, you know, dealing with Dennis at Hudson Valley Mall has been great. Um, I feel like he was in one of those people you meet that's an immediate friend. Uh, but um, just having that instant feedback loop is super helpful, uh, you know, when brewing such a unique beer i think or well i guess it's unique in the fact that all the ingredients are so local but not unique in other ways <laughs> but um i you know 
I don't know if you know this, Jimmy, but I was brewing in New York State since 2003. And if you ever told me you'd be able to make an IPA that rivals some of the better hazy IPAs coming out of New England with all New York State ingredients, I would have told you you were out of your mind. And uh, now it's just something that's 100% possible, as we've kind of proven with Yes Farms, I think. And uh, to me, as a New York native, that's really fucking awesome to see. I love it. You know, it, it, uh, that's amazing. Do, really, do, really and fun. I know it takes a while to develop that. Um, and we, we've done a lot of shows about about that process. I want to, but in this crisis and going forward, how important is the local supply? I mean, obviously, there there's hops and malt available that you guys can work with. And for Ben too, are you seeing that 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 are people like breweries going to naturally go towards buying local if they can, uh, or is that just a it's a process that's already been happening? Um, yeah, I think out here in Washington, it's a process that's already been happening. Um, we have a great uh, maltster that's uh, grown quite quickly um, that uses a lot of local grain that's called Skagit Valley Malt. Um, you know, uh, we obviously grow almost three quarters of the hops, uh, in the country. We have great water. Um, so, you know, the, everything has been there, uh, for a while. And I think, uh, also the consumer in the Pacific Northwest is very much about supporting local and has been. So I don't know that, um, this crisis has made anybody change their mind about sourcing ingredients um, per se more than they would have otherwise. I will say that talking about your landscape series, um, a lot of breweries that I've talked to in the last few weeks um, are, are definitely um, doubling down on lagers right now. So <laughs> that might that might be something we see a lot of in 2020. <laughs> it's going to be a good year for lagers. About time. Well, let's talk about the beer. The beers we're drinking. So, um, just um, I have two beers, and I got them both at Malt and Mold uh, in in Manhattan, a great beer shop, cheese shop. Um, one I've I've been waiting to have a Duchess Ale on on air uh, from Mike, and I have the Duchess Ale Auger Porter, which is going down great, and I also have from Transmitter the Pre Prohibition Lager. So everyone else, uh, Sophia, I know what you're drinking. Mm-hmm. Well, I've actually already moved on. <laughs> what are you, where, where are you at now? So Now I'm at a regular wrench. Oh, nice. So you have pocket wrench and wrench. And Gia, what are yeah. you drinking? I'm still drinking uh, the Spring Landscape. And, and so tell us about Spring Landscape. So that's a lager? Yeah, it's a Hellesbach, actually, this year. Uh, last year, I think we used honey. And this year, we kind of didn't. <laughs> Not kind of. We didn't use honey this year. So, uh, you know, Mike does a, a really amazing job with these recipes, I must say, um, in how balanced they are. So this beer, as to me, has like this really pleasant kind of like malty graham crackery uh, sweetness, but is almost instantaneously balanced by uh, a nice hot bitterness that doesn't linger at all. And, uh, you know, being in beer so long, I think a lot of us find uh, 
like beauty in that simplicity of well-balanced beers and drinkability. For sure, man. And, and Ben, what are you drinking? Yeah, so I uh, was trying to find some East Coast beer, at least, to uh, toast with you guys. <laughs> so I'm drinking um, Sweetwater, which is down in Atlanta. Um, their guide beer, which is a light lager with Pilsner malts, flaked corn, and I think it's Hallertau and Mount Hood hops. It's delicious. It's 4%. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, that Hellas Bach you're describing, Geo, sounds awesome. And yeah, I'm all about lagers these days. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess we could say, too, I mean, we talk about if, if right now everyone's getting to-go packaging. Um, you know, for me still, it's like there's nothing like going to a good pub or restaurant and, you know, having the full on-premise experience. And that'll never go away. But I know that the trends have already been happening. You know, going back five years, I think more food was sold to, to go and prepared food, then then sit down. And that was the first time in the restaurant industry that trend has happened. So if you're talking about styles, I mean, do you think that lager is the style that more people want when they're drinking at home or, or when they're taking out packaging? Uh, Sophia? I would actually say the opposite. Um you know, I would see the difference in the our beer sales from New York City versus the Hudson Valley. In the Hudson Valley, you would see more sessionable beers being sold. I think in part because people would need to drive places, you know. So you would have like one or two medium ABV beers and then maybe take some package to go and go on home. Um, and... And in the city, you would see people drink higher ABV beers because you wouldn't really be driving anywhere. And I think now, since people are drinking at home so much, and I'm seeing this also kind of confirmed in our Instagram, where you're seeing people like posting the the meals that they're cooking and the beers that they're drinking with, with the meals or while they're cooking the meals. And it's a lot of high ABV beers. Like, I think that at this moment, <laughs> higher ABV beers are somewhat comforting to people. And, you know, it's it's changing week by week. I don't think it's it's too soon to make any kind of declarations about what the trends are. But I have been seeing people kind of turning to a boozier beer in this time. So I'm going out. To, it's Passover and Easter, probably when you hear this. Uh, so I should be drinking. Which of your beers is 10%? Impact Wrench. Impact Wrench. And then Ben, anything? Yeah. We're going to close out in a minute. Ben, uh, anything else you want to weigh in on? Yeah, I, I would agree with Sophia. I feel like um, here in Seattle, when people are going out to bars and restaurants, they're drinking um, lower ABV, easy drinking stuff, a lot of um, Rainier, um, a lot of... Exactly. <laughs> vitamin R. Um, you know, one of our popular breweries out here is Cloudburst. They sell a lot of their um, hoppy little clouds, dry hop Pilsner. But then um, talking about all the stuff you see online, people drinking on their couch, it's barley wine, it's Imperial Stout, it's those big bad boys, because you don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> exactly. So it's a nightcap. Also, if anybody doesn't follow Cloudburst on Instagram, you should immediately. It's Start the most doing it now. delightful yeah, Instagram I've ever they seen. Are... <laughs> They have some great content and are pretty great dudes to yeah. boot. 
Well, you guys, it's, it's been so great having everybody on. Um, I actually have a little prayer slash poem because oh. it's kind of Passover and Easter all together. And I'd like to read this since of these times and then we'll sign off. Um, we will gather together again. The kindred spirit, hope for the weary. Pay tribute to those we have lost. Celebrate the cycle of life, which must go on. Um, amen. Happy Passover. Happy Easter. So you guys have been great. It's been great. So, so great having you guys on. Jeff Wenzel and Sophia Barbaresco from Industrial Arts. Ben Keen, writer from Seattle. A big shout out to our producer, Dylan Hoyer, who's been doing this uh, remotely. And engineer Matt Patterson, who's also been working remotely. And thanks so much for our listeners for sticking with us. Support HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, guys. Bye-bye, guys. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.